Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we take a closer look at the response among many in the medical and public health communities to the president's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, his own diagnosis, and the national response to U.S. citizens reeling from those choices. My guest is Dr. Mike Reed, Assistant Professor of Medicine at UCSF and Associate Director of the Center for Global Health Diplomacy, Delivery, and Economics. Mike has also been heading up San Francisco's contact tracing efforts with the Department of Public Health, and we discuss the city's response and his work communicating with contact tracers around the world. This morning we heard that the Debate Commission has moved next week's debate online and the president has said that's not what he wants and he doesn't want to participate. And so I'm wondering your take on the decision by the commission, given your expertise area. Personally, I'm grateful for their good sense, their common sense. From a a medical point of view, we think that people can be infectious up until 10 days from the time of diagnosis. And, And for some, it's longer than that. For most people, it's probably shorter than that. Whether he will be infectious, you know, at the time of the debate, who knows? But why take the risk? Um, it just seems baffling to me. It almost feels like he's sort of taunting his opponent to like take risk, you know, for no good reason. It feels very irresponsible, particularly as as our nation's leader. You want them to adhere to our best guidance for isolation and quarantine. And on that note, you know, I'm talking to you, a medical professional, to try to make sense of the responses and reactions that we're getting and also the uh, lack of information. And to be fair, throughout U.S. history, presidents have hidden or obfuscated medical issues. It's not, that's not a new thing. But we learn again today that doctors at Walter Reed who are treating the president were asked to sign NDAs and those who refused are not allowed to treat the president. So I wanted to kind of get your take on the NDA thing and the actual rules of HIPAA and what the public should know when a figure in a position like the president is ill. From my personal perspective, I wouldn't breach the confidentiality of my patient, regardless of whether it's you know, homeless guy here in San Francisco or the president of the U.S. That doesn't make any difference to me. And one would hope that my colleagues would adhere to the same standards, which is sort of instituted within the the legal framework of HIPAA. Like that's a non-negotiable. That would be a professional misdemeanor or faux pas to, to breach confidentiality in that kind of way. I don't think I understand what additional protections would be afforded the president by an NDA compared to, you know, the confidentiality that we adhere to professionally. But I do have the right as a patient to say, no, it's okay. Let people know. I'm wondering how you thought the news conferences went last week when you saw the doctors at Walter Reed. My sense is that the perspective that was presented from those particular health professionals were implicitly political, right? It was a particular narrative, a particular kind of story about the trajectory of his health, which jarred a little bit with, but he got our big guns from a therapeutic point of view. You know, we reserve dexamethasone for people who are very unwell, um, often in the intensive care setting. And similarly, remdesivir has only proven to be effective in people who are, you know, unwell, requiring supplemental oxygen, and or in an intensive care situation, it would be unusual to give it to somebody who is less sick than that. But, you know, it's the president of the US, maybe their perspective is let's give him everything just to be on the safe side. But it's certainly not how we practice medicine at at UCSF. I want to specifically ask about dexamethasone. My understanding is that you give it in severe cases, but 
that it actually could be counterintuitive in less severe cases. This is true of any therapeutic intervention. There's a risk and there's a, there's a benefit and you weigh the two. And so a drug like dexamethasone is not a risk-free drug. It's a powerful steroid and powerful steroids have side effects. And so you only give it when you feel like those risks are outweighed by the benefits. One would presume that that was the calculus that they made at Walter Reed. I wouldn't want to administer that to somebody who was not that sick because of those risks. And those risks are things that I think have been documented. You know, it can affect people's ability to like make, you know, cogent decisions, as well as more physical side effects related to bleeding, diathesis, and glucose control, those kinds of things. Okay. You know, and your uh, colleague at UCSF, Dr. Wachter, pointed out, this was a couple of days ago, that there were two moments when he thought, oh, that's the steroids talking. One was when he's like, I feel like I'm 20 years younger. And and the other was the, the stair walk. I certainly read a torrent of tweets at some point that were all capitalized from the president that really I thought, wow, that could be the influence of steroids, you know, like somewhat incoherent, um, very stream of consciousness, fairly dysregulated without any kind of uh, sense of restraint. And, you know, to Dr. Wachter's point, that, that could all be the, the steroid speaking, you know, that, that sort of euphoric, I feel amazing, you know, is, is, is another example of how steroids can impact people's um, cognitive function. And related to that sort of insomnia and, and racing thoughts, et cetera. I'm not suggesting that's what's going on, but, you know, you can let, let your listeners make their own judgments, right? It is a dicey path to walk because even even while not under steroid treatment, he does tweet in all caps, maybe to a lesser extent. I think it's too early to say that he is out of the woods. You know, what we know about the, the natural history of this disease is that people often, they do okay in the first week of, of COVID. And it's towards the end of that first week, day seven through day 10, that they can be you know, progressive decline in their respiratory function, their, their ability to, to breathe normally. I would be hesitant about saying he's on the road to recovery. I hope he does get better. I don't want to wish ill health on anybody. Absolutely. I think in such a politically charged environment, it's easy to think, oh, the other side just wants this and wants that. I don't want anyone to die. I want to understand what's going on and for all of us to move through this in a way where more people don't get affected. I think there was, and I think it's a missed opportunity. There was a unique opportunity to model for the rest of the US what it looks like to responsibly live with COVID-19 as a, as a patient and, and what are the responsibilities around isolation so that you don't put other people at risk. That reflects profound negligence on behalf of the president that is completely irresponsible. New England Journal of Medicine today. What a great editorial, right? Is that what you're going to ask me about? Yeah, I am. Oh, my word. Called the president dangerously incompetent, referring to his handling of the pandemic. And I wanted to ask you, is that unprecedented? Do medical journals usually weigh in on this kind of stuff? No, not to my knowledge. I mean, my, my understanding is that it's the first time the New England Journal has come out with a explicitly political editorial like that. It's also very unusual for all of the editors of the New England Journal to sign on to a particular editorial. And these are unprecedented times. And I think everybody that is involved in this public health response sees how bad the US is managing the response. Just look at the US and compare with Germany, compare with Italy, you know, which was hit by a tsunami back in, in March, April, compare it with our countries in, in the Far East and East Asia, who've done an incredible job. Vietnam, Taiwan, New Zealand all have less cases 
than the White House, right? Than the White House. Yeah, than the White House, than the White House. Those three countries together have less cases right now than the White House. And I just think that speaks to the profound ineptitude of our national political leadership. I'm speaking to the choir, right? There's no point in me telling you this. And I don't know how to get that information into the hands of people that are actually going to have a, a critical role in swing states. But it makes me sad that U.S. Has, has fallen to such sort of depths in terms of the ineptitude of the response. I'm ready to have a good policy debate with someone who disagrees with me. Like, let's have that debate. That's important because we can find paths forward together. But when it comes comes to health and death and life and safety, I just feel like there's not a whole lot of room and, and I don't know how to get the message out either. And how might that affect your work as, as a doctor at a, a world-renowned institution? As someone who's been involved in this, how does that affect the work of your colleagues and you who are trying to deal with, with this situation? Well, the thing that I do do now is very relevant to the president's behavior is that I oversee the contact tracing program at, at San Francisco Department of Public Health. And on a daily basis, our team is reaching out to people who have either been diagnosed with COVID COVID or have been exposed to COVID. And we do two things. If an individual is, is infected with COVID, not sick enough that they need to be in hospital, one of the things we do is we ask them to stay at home, to isolate, and we help them to understand that leaving their homes puts other people at risk and part of their shared responsibility is to stay at home. And similarly for contacts, we say, hey, you've been exposed to somebody with COVID. We need you to quarantine because you could develop COVID yourself. And that means staying at home and quarantining. I think it's really hard to message that to the general population when we see the leader of our country having not only disregard for that advice, but almost contempt for it. Like, I don't need to isolate. I can do what I like. I feel fine. That's the challenge with this disease is that people do feel fine and yet they're still infectious, right? So even if he does feel a million dollars, he still needs to stay at home so that he doesn't put other people at risk. And not only that, but he declined or he wouldn't allow the CDC to contact trace at the White House. Again, I think it's baffling that you wouldn't want to put your own institution through the same process that we're asking every other American to, to go through in terms of be willing to participate in a contact tracing exercise, because it ultimately it protects his workforce. It protects his, his team at the White House. If you're able to identify those that have been exposed, those that have been infected, and then institute measures to protect the rest of that workforce, it would pay dividends and speak to the, the responsible way that they're addressing the outbreak in their midst. I don't know why they haven't done that. I think it's totally baffling to me and will likely have negative fallouts for the most vulnerable members of his workforce, right? He may have dodged a bullet quite literally, but but I would worry about the backroom team, the people that work in the kitchens or, or you know, the housekeeping stuff. And if they get exposed and infected, like that could be really bad news. And I think it speaks speaks volumes to how he cares about that team that they haven't undertaken a contact tracing effort. About your work here in California doing contact tracing, can you talk a little bit about what it's been like to sort of work on the contract tracing effort and how it's been going here in California and what responses you've been getting from the population? Before I started doing this work, I was a global health researcher working in Africa and then sort of end of February, most of my work you know, came to an end, I couldn't travel. And like many other people, I wanted to sort of be involved with the COVID response. There was an opportunity to work with the Department of Public Health in San Francisco, and I joined the team. And it has been one of the most exhilarating, professionally rewarding moments of my career, with the exception of not getting enough sleep and working weeks and weeks on end. 
the professional piece in terms of the work we're doing has been equally incredible. In San Francisco, beginning of March, we had 12 contact tracers who were working on many different diseases. Um, and over the course of the last six months, that team has expanded to well over 200 people involved with case investigation contact tracing. We've mobilized a workforce that not only includes public health professionals, but librarians, people from the city attorney's office, assessors, public health, environmental scientists, all focused on this work. And it's been an extraordinarily exciting and meaningful endeavor. The dividend of the work is clear. You know, San Francisco has seen a much lower mortality rate from COVID-19 than other settings. I like to think that's because of the workforce and the work that we've done. It's not the only thing. And we have visionary leaders at the Department of Public Health that are thinking about all sorts of elements of the COVID response in addition to contact tracing. The other thing that has been like hugely rewarding is seeing this workforce of nearly 200 people who didn't have any public health experience fall in love with the work and, and really feel like they're contributing in a meaningful way to the effort. That being said, I think it's hard work. Um, and for many of those folks who haven't done clinical or public health work, the, the experience of vicarious trauma has been has been tough. It feels sometimes like you're calling your grandmother or, or an uncle on the phone and having to tell them like you've gotten COVID or you've been exposed. That's a new and stressful experience for, for a librarian who's never done that before. That has also been sort of part of the challenge is how do we sustain this workforce to do this meaningful work whilst it's exhausting and, and, and unrelenting. And I think the other thing that is hard you know, for, for us is, is seeing on a regular basis the profound inequities that exist in our city. Despite being a phenomenally affluent place, COVID reveals the profound inequities in San Francisco such that there are some communities that have been massively impacted by the epidemic. And, and I think that that's been personally challenging for the folks doing the work, but also speaks to the need for, for more work to be done, right? Um, moving forward, if we're ever going to address these um, issues. First, I want to say uh, how grateful we are because I, I bet you're not sleeping, but you can see the results. Our city has a very low rate. People seem to be taking things seriously. When I go out and walk with my mask on, other people are wearing their masks. People are distancing. The educational effort and the contact tracing effort has been amazing. I'm seeing it from a layperson's perspective, right, and how grateful I am to live in the city. Uh, but, but yeah, from your perspective, how has the community been responding to you? You'd be amazed. I think there's this sense that maybe when, when contact tracers call people, their suspicion that they hang up, et cetera. By far and away, the, the experience of our frontline tracers is that when they call people on the phone, that people hear them out, that they're grateful for, for the call, and people are willing to, to sort of do what we ask. And that, that's over and above the experience of, of almost all the people that we speak to. The bigger challenge is actually getting people on the phone. Like people don't always pick up the phone, but when they do pick up the phone, by far and away, people are responsive and receptive and positive. And we have some lovely examples of that, you know, where, where our traces have, have spoken to people who've just said, hey, look, you're the first person who's called me in, in, in several months. Thank you. Or, I, I never thought the Department of Public Health would be able to offer me the things that you've offered me. Thank you. So that's great to sort of hear those testimonies. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're discussing contact tracing with Dr. Mike Reed, as well as the medical community's concerns about the president's response to the pandemic. I think it's helpful for people to understand what contact tracing involves. We reach out to people and we ask them if they've been exposed. And then we ask them if they have been exposed, can they quarantine for 14 days? But fulfilling that 
obligation to quarantine requires that people take a risk, you know, or, or, or take on a burden. They have to stay at home. And I think one of the things that is unique about the San Francisco model is a recognition that we have to support people to do that. We have to provide them with the food to do that. If they need prescription medications, we need to get them delivered to them. If there's a dog that needs to be walked, how can we get, get your dog walked? And I do think that's important to highlight because contact tracing, just reaching people and saying, hey, you've been exposed, is not a silver bullet unless it happens in the context of wraparound services. And I do think San Francisco is, is doing that. And I'm proud to be in a city that recognizes the need for that holistic approach to, to care. My hope is that this is an opportunity to like build a better public health system moving forward. We've mobilized all of these people to do contact tracing. We're now getting all of these NGOs, CBOs to do the work. Like how can we ensure that they, they're still involved with the public health response to other things, high blood pressure, HIV risk, all sorts of other things when COVID is over. You brought up a point that I don't want to let go by without actually sitting with it for a second. You brought up the fact that this has revealed some inequities in the city as well that we need to deal with. And of course, we've been hearing in the news about placing unhoused people in hotels and, and, and helping manage their safety. Given your work globally and now here in our city, if you have any thoughts from a public health perspective, from a medical perspective about how we can do better moving forward. It's a great question. Every Friday afternoon from four till five, we have a meeting with all of our contact tracers, about 200 people on a Zoom call, and we invite speakers from all around the world to come. We've had you know, contact tracing experts from Singapore, from Senegal, from New Zealand. We have somebody from South Africa next week, Hong Kong tomorrow. It's truly humbling to see how well other countries have done at responding to the epidemic. Often countries with much lower medium incomes than, than our country. If you ask me why that is, by far and away, the biggest distinction is leadership. It's leadership at the national level. You know, if you look at Rwanda, if you look at Singapore, if you look at um, Uganda, they have done an incredible job. Hearing last week the experience from New Zealand was amazing. They went 104 days without a single case, and that's about leadership. So to your point, yes, it has been heartbreaking to see the profound inequities in San Francisco. And, and yes, we've done a good job. But as I alluded to earlier, I, I think it's a wake-up call that actually there is profound poverty in our midst. I don't think I realized before this work, like the number of households where there's more than 12 people living in a house, where there are five or six people sharing a room, even here in San Francisco. And that has sort of been an eye opener for me. These are people who are are housed, right? These aren't the people who are on the streets, have a place to go, but it's profoundly overcrowded. And then the other challenge is that many of those communities that are most impacted are the people that have to go to work. They physically have to go to work. They can't work remotely. Part of the reason why the disease is spread through those communities is that they're essential workers who are required to put themselves at risk on a daily basis and then go home to, to homes where they're you know, living in very cramped conditions. You mentioned that there are countries doing great things. Can you talk a little bit about what they're doing that you would love to see us do? We had one of the, the leaders of the New Zealand contact tracing program come and speak to us last Friday. And almost all of their cases now are imported. Everybody is offered isolation and quarantine in a hotel separated from everybody else. And they're supported to stay in those, those environments um, until they're safe to, to return to the community. They also provide financial protections to people that are required to isolate and quarantine so that they're able to do it and it's not going to cost them so they don't have to go back to work. I think that's critical in New Zealand, but also hearing from South Africa, they instituted these measures so early in the course of the pandemic 
South Africa required people to wear masks and socially distance the first week in April. Everybody was mandated to do that. And I think the dividend of doing those kinds of things early allows you to be able to respond more effectively in terms of contact tracing and these other elements that, that I think we've, we've not been able to do. One thing that I think is a through line is caring for your population and, and the idea of you don't worry about work. We, the leaders, are going to step in and make sure you are housed, you are cared for, you don't lose your job. Yes, that costs a lot of money, but it it's ultimately seems to me as if it's going to help the population by keeping things a little bit more stable, which is not something I've seen here. And so I have a great deal of concern for the people who aren't being cared for in a way that I'd like to see or that I see other countries. You made a great case. When this disease affects one of us, it affects all of us. And the economic calculus around why we need to do it is a no-brainer to me. You know, if we don't look out for the most vulnerable, then, then it's going to hurt all of us. In Singapore, for folks that are infected or are exposed, all of their meals are provided while they're sick and, and at home. And again, they provide a financial stipend to people who are um, required to quarantine or isolate. In fairness, even in Singapore, which has done an amazing job, there was a big outbreak back in May. And that outbreak happened in the hostels where the immigrants were working, you know, people from Bangladesh and India. And so they realized, hey, look, we need to go and target our resources to those communities and increase testing for those communities. And, and I think that has more recently paid dividends. The other thing that I would say in terms of caring is, is the size of the workforce. In Singapore, they mobilized a workforce of several thousand contact tracers from a public health infrastructure that was already 10 times the size of what we have in the US. And I think just having that workforce ready to go in order to support people, I think is, is evidence of caring in a, in a more sort public health way. The other example I was going to give was Rwanda. Rwanda has had 29 deaths for a population of 13 million people, which is amazing, right? I mean, just speaks to like, again, leadership, but also like the nimbleness of their healthcare system. So they quickly pivoted a lot of their testing capabilities that were up and running for diseases like HIV so that they could respond to the, the, the COVID outbreak. We haven't done that in the US and maybe that speaks to the inadequacies of a federal system or the lack of like national leadership, but there was an opportunity to do something similar and, and basically every state and local jurisdiction was left to its own devices to kind of figure this out um, rather than providing a roadmap for how everybody could do it that I think federal government could have done. A Pew research study from September 27th. And so this would be pre, I believe, pre-announcement that Trump had tested positive. Pew asked, would you or would you not get the vaccine? Of all the respondents, 51% said they would definitely or probably get it. 49 so they definitely or probably would not. And what's fascinating to me is when you break that out by party, Republicans, 44% said they definitely or probably would versus 66% definitely or probably no. And Democrats actually had a higher rate of would. They 58% said they definitely or probably would versus 42% definitely would not or probably would not. And the reasons they gave were concern about side effects and they want to know more about how the vaccine works before they make a decision to get it. Overall, that's about half say, sure, we'll get it. And about half say, yeah, I don't know about that. No, I don't think so. What's your take on that? You know, the, the diffidence to vaccines speaks to a lack of like health literacy in the general population around the importance of vaccines. We have many vaccine preventable diseases that do not cause 
death and, and morbidity in the US now because we have vaccines, right? And yet at the same time, there is this fairly sinister, in my mind, sinister agenda to undermine the science of vaccines, despite the complete absence of good data showing that vaccines don't work, whether those are vaccines for mumps, measles, and, and rubella or, or influenza. I would argue that this is a great opportunity for, for national leadership to step up and say, hey, we're going to trust the science because we believe the scientists know what they're doing. Our evidence of that trust is we're going to get vaccinated and, and lead by example and then commit resources to educating the general population on why this works, how it works, helping people understand what is a randomized control trial? What is a phase three trial? And what kind of rigor do those trials have to go through um, so that they can understand the kind of risk that they're taking? I think it's completely reasonable but that people would be concerned about a risk of any new therapy, right? But but I think that has to be weighed against the obvious, profound, awful sequelae of, of COVID that we've already seen, 210,000 dead in our country because of this virus. What I would say back to you, I agree. I, I would say back to you, though, that I believe in vaccines. I'm not an anti I'm in. Give me a vaccine. I think my concern with this particular vaccine comes because it's being moved through so quickly. And I'm not sure what safety measures have been in place. There's been no long-term data. And so I would say I'm certainly probably going to get it. But I, ha I have my reservations based on those things. So how might you respond to, to me or to someone who has those concerns? Look, I think that's reasonable. The technology of the vaccine, I don't think is going to be completely novel. You know, the way that the vaccine is delivered and the, the vectors that are used to transmit the thing that's going to elicit the, the immune response are, are not novel. But we are, and I say we in terms of the scientific community, I'm not involved with any kind of vaccine studies. We are like, requiring these studies to go under the same kind of rigor that any kind of vaccine trial undergoes. And you may know there was a, you know, there was a, a single case in the UK about a month ago of somebody that developed a side effect that could have been from the vaccine, could have been something completely unrelated. And, and the trial was paused so that they could understand that better. And I think that speaks to the fact that everybody wants to do this right because there is so much scrutiny and scrutiny is good and we should encourage that. How should we the general public be responding to COVID at this time? What's going to be most helpful to us, to public health and, and medical professionals? Great question. First of all, I would say just the simple things, wearing a mask and socially distancing. Wearing a mask not only protects you, it protects those people around you. We know that 40 to 45% of people don't have any symptoms, but also wearing a mask seems to protect people from getting the worst consequences of COVID. It's sort of like a vaccine equivalent. And so wearing a mask, I think is absolutely crucial. Everybody should wear a mask when they leave the house, going for a run, walking the dog, going to Safeway, wear a mask you know, going to work, getting on a bus or Mooney, if indeed you're going to do that, wear a mask. The other thing, like as a contact tracing expert is just remember who you're hanging out with, because if you do get sick, we want to find out who those people are. If you're going out this weekend, make sure you know who you're out with and you have all of their phone numbers so that if we need to reach them, we can do. And I like the point you made about degrees, about if you wear a mask, then maybe you don't get hit with as large of a viral load and maybe your case isn't as bad. You know, the calculus around risk is going to be different for different people, just in the same way that like as people sort of engage in sexual practices. I'm an HIV doctor, so I think about this a lot. Some people don't have sex. Some people 
you know, only will have sex with people they know. Some people will only have sex with a condom. You, you make your own decisions around risk. And I think that's probably going to be true as we move forward in the COVID area with the acknowledgement that your assessment of risk has to be, you know, thought of within your shared responsibility to the wider community. And that's different from HIV, right? Where it's far more sort of individuated risk. The steps that you take to protect yourself can also protect those around you, particularly those most vulnerable within our community. Is there anything you want to say that I didn't ask you that you feel it's important for people to know? I don't want to downplay the tragedy of COVID, but I do think this provides us with an opportunity to rethink how we deliver healthcare in the US, how we think about how we protect and support the most vulnerable members of our community. And here's the thing, COVID, if it affects one of us, it affects all of us. If we can't solve COVID for our homeless community, for those undocumented in our midst, those that are under or uninsured, we can't solve it for the affluent folks in Seacliff or, or Pack Heights. And so I think we have to step up. We need to think about like what what's the investment necessary in public health infrastructure moving forward so that we can not only imagine, but realize a better society that can prevent this in, in the future. And look, we can do this as a society with sufficient political will, public engagement and, and financial resources. We can transform society and we should do, right? It's the right thing to do. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Mike Reed, Assistant Professor of Medicine at UCSF and Associate Director of the Center for Global Health Diplomacy, Delivery and Economics. Mike also heads up San Francisco's contact tracing program with the city's Department of Public Health. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.